Section 16 of Harding's Luck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Clark. Harding's Luck by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter 10 The Noble Deed. When Lord Arden and Elfrida and Edward reached the castle and found that Dickie had not come back, the children concluded that Bill had persuaded him to stay the night at the cottage, and Lord Arden thought that the children must be right. He was extremely annoyed, both with Bill and with Dickie, for making such an arrangement without consulting him. It is impertinent of Bill and thoughtless of the boy, he said, and I shall speak a word to them both in the morning. But when Edward and Elfrida were gone to bed, Lord Arden found that he could not feel quite sure or quite satisfied. Suppose Dickie was not at Bill's. He strolled up to the cottage to see. Everything was dark at the cottage. He hesitated. They knocked at the door. At the third knock, Bill, very sleepy, put his head out of the window. Who's there? he said. I am here, said Lord Arden. Richard is asleep, I suppose. I suppose so, my lord, said Bill, sleepy and puzzled. You have given me some anxiety. I had to come up to make sure he was here. But he ain't here, said Bill. Didn't you pick him up with the dog cart, same as you said you would? No, shouted Lord Arden. Come down, Bill, and get a lantern. There must have been an accident. Bedroom window showed a square of light, and Lord Arden below heard Bill blundering about above. Here's your coat, Mrs. Bill's voice sounded. Never mind lacing up your boots. You ought to have gone a bit away with him. Well, I offered for to go, didn't I? Bill growled, blundered down the stairs and out through the wash house and came round the corner of the house with a stable lantern in his hand. He came close to where Lord Arden stood, a tall, dark figure in the starlight, and spoke in a voice that trembled. The little nipper, he said, and again, The little nipper. If anything's happened to him, swelp me, governor, my lord, I mean, what I meant to say, if anything's happened to him, one of the best. The two men went quickly toward the gate. As they passed down the quiet, dusty road, Bill spoke again. I wasn't no good. I don't deceive you, governor. And no account man I was, so help me. And the little un, he tidied me up and told me tales and kept me straight. It was his doing me and Amelia coming together. And the dogs and all. And the little one. And he's got me to jack the gadgin. And worse, he don't know what I was like when I met him. Why? I set out to make a blighted burglar of him. You wouldn't believe. And out the whole story came, as Lord Arden and he went along the grey road, looking to right and left, where no bushes were nor stones, only the smooth curves of the down, and that it was easy to see that no little boy was there either. They looked for Dicky to right and left, and here and there under bushes, and by stiles and hedges, and with trembling hearts they searched in the little old chalk quarry, and the white moon came up very late to help them. But they did not find him, though they roused a dozen men in the village to join in the search, and old Bill himself, who knew every yard of the ground for five miles round, came out with the spaniel, who knew every inch of it for ten. But True rushed about the house and garden, whining and yelping so piteously that Amelia tied him up, and he stayed tied up. And so, when Edward and Elfrida came down to breakfast, Mrs. Honeyset met them with the news that Dickie was lost, and their father still out looking for him. "'It's that beastly magic,' said Edward as soon as the children were alone. "'He's done it once too often, and he's got stuck some time in history, and can't get back. 
and we can't do anything. We can't get to him, said Elfrida. Oh, if only we'd got the old white magic and the mouldy warp to help us. We could find out what's become of him. Perhaps he has fallen down a disused mine, Edward suggested, and he's lying panting for water, and his faithful dog has jumped down after him and broken all its dear legs. Elfrida melted to tears at this desperate picture, melted to a speechless extent. We can't do anything, said Edward again. Don't snivel like that, for goodness sake, Elfrida. This is a man's job. Dry up. I can't think with you blubbling like that. I'm not, said Elfrida untruly, and sniffed with some intensity. If you could make up some poetry now, Edward went on, would that be any good? Not without the dresses, she sniffed. You know we always had dresses for our magic, or nearly always, and they have to be dead and gone people's dresses, and you'll only go to the dead and gone people's time when the dresses were worn. Oh, dear Dickie, if he's really down a mine or things like that, what's the good of anything? I'm going to try anyway, said Edward. At least you must too, because I can't make poetry. No more can I when I'm as unhappy as this. Poetry's the last thing you think of when you're mizzy. We could dress up anyway, said Edward hopefully. The bits of armour out of the hall and the Indian feather headdresses father brought home, and I have father's shooting gaiters and brown paper tops, and you can have Aunt Edith's Roman sash. It's in the right-hand corner drawer. I saw it on the wedding day when I went to get her prayer book. I don't want to dress up, said Elfrida. I want to find Dickie. I don't want to dress up either, said Edward. But we must do something, and perhaps I know it's just only perhaps. It might help if we dressed up. Let's try it anyway. Elfrida was too miserable to argue. Before long, two most miserable children faced each other in Edward's room dressed as red Indians as far as their heads and backs went. Then came lots of plate armour for chest and arms. Then in the case of Elfrida, petticoats and Roman sash and Japanese wickerwork shoes and father's shooting gaiters made to look like boots by brown paper tops. In the case of Edward, legs cased in armour that looked like cricket pads ending in jointed foot coverings that looked like chrysalises. I am told the correct plural is chrysalides but life would be dull indeed if one always used the correct plural. They were two forlorn faces that looked at each other, as Edward said. Now the poetry. I can't, said Elfrida, bursting into tears again. I can't, so there. I've been trying all the time we've been dressing, and I can only think of. I'll call dear Dickie back to me. I cannot play alone. The summer comes with flower and bee. Where is Dickie gone? And I know that's no use. I should think not, said Edward. Why, it isn't your own poetry at all. It's Felicia M. Hemmons. I'll try. And he got a pencil and paper and try he did. His very hardest, be sure. But there are some things that the best and bravest cannot do. And the thing Edward couldn't do was to make poetry, however bad. He simply couldn't do it any more than you can fly. It wasn't in him any more than wings are on you. Oh, Mouldy Walk, you said we must not have any more magic, but we trust. You won't be hard on us, because Dickie is lost, and we don't know how to find him. That was the best Edward could do, and I tell it to his credit. He really did feel doubtful whether that what he had slowly and carefully written was indeed genuine poetry. So much so, that he would not show it to Elfrida until she had begged very hard indeed. 
at about the thirtieth. Do, please, Edward, do. He gave her the paper. No little girl was ever more polite than Elfrida, or less anxious to hurt the feelings of others. But she was also quite truthful, and when Edred said in an ashamed, muffled voice, Is it all right, do you think? The best she could find by way of answer was, I don't know much about poetry. We'll try it. And they did try it, and nothing happened. I knew it was no good, Edward said crossly, and I've made an ass of myself for nothing. Well, I've often made one of myself said Elfrida comfortingly, and I will again if you like, but I don't suppose it'll be any more good than yours. Elfrida frowned fiercely, and the feathers on her Indian headdress quivered with the intensity of her effort. Is it coming? Edward asked in anxious tones, and she nodded distractedly. Great mouldiest warp, on you we call, to do the greatest magic of all, to show us how we are to find, dear Dicky, who is lame and kind. Do this for us, and on our hearts we swore, we'll never ask you for anything more. I don't see that it's so much better than mine, said Edred, and it ought to be swear, not swore. I don't think it is, but you didn't finish yours, and it couldn't be swear, because rhyming, Elfrida explained. But I'm sure if the mouldiest wop hears it, he won't care a tuppence whether it's swear or swore. He is much too great. He's far above grammar, I'm sure. I wish everyone was, sighed Edward, and I dare say you have often felt the same. Well, far away. Not that it's any good. Don't you remember you can only get to the mouldiest walk by a noble deed? And wanting to find Dicky isn't noble. No, she agreed. But then, if we could get Dicky back by doing a noble deed, we'd do it like a shot, wouldn't we? Oh, uh, I suppose so, said Edward grumpily. Fire away, can't you? Elfrida fired away and the next moment it was plain that Elfrida's poetry was more potent than Edward's, also that a little bad grammar was a trifle to a mighty mouldy warp, for the walls of Edward's room receded further and further, till the children found themselves in a great white hall, with avenues of tall pillars stretching in every direction, as far as you could see. The hall was crowded with people dressed in costumes of all countries and all ages, Chinamen, Indians, Crusaders in armour, powdered ladies, doubleted gentlemen, cavaliers in curls, Turks in turbans, Arabs, monks, abbesses, jesters, grandees with ruffs round their necks, and savages with kilts of thatch. Every kind of dress you could think of was there, only all the dresses were white. It was like a redoute, which is a fancy dress ball, where the guests may wear any dress they choose, only all the dresses must be of one colour. Elfrida saw the whiteness all about her, and looked down anxiously at her clothes and Edward's, which she remembered to have been of rather odd colours. Everything they wore was white now, even the Roman sash, instead of having stripes blue and red and green and black and yellow, was of five different shades of white. If you think there are not so many shades of white, try to paper a room with white paper and get it at five different shops. People round the children pushed them gently forward, and then they saw that in the middle of the hall was a throne of silver, spread with a fringed cloth of chequered silver and green, and on it, with the mouldy warp standing on one side and the mouldier warp on the other, the mouldiest warp was seated in state and splendour. He was much larger than either of the other moles, and his fur was as silvery as the feathers of a swan. Everyone in the room was looking at the two children. It seemed impossible for them not to advance, though slowly and shyly, right to the front of the throne. Arrived there, it seemed right to bow very low. So they did it. 
Then the Mouldiwarp said, What brings you here? Kind magic, Elfrida answered. And the Mouldiwarp said, What is your desire? And Edward said, We want Dickie, please. Then the Mouldiwarp said, It was to Edward that he said it. Dickie is in the hands of those who will keep him from you for many a day unless you yourself go alone and rescue him. It will be difficult and it will be dangerous. Will you go? Me? Alone? said Edward rather blankly. Not Elfrida? Dickie can only be ransomed at a great price. It must be paid by you. It will cost you more to do it than it would cost Elfrida, because she is braver than you are. Here is a nice thing for a boy to have said to him. Before all these people too, to ask a chap to do a noble deed, and in the same breath to tell him he is a coward. Edward flushed crimson, and a shudder ran through the company. Don't turn that horrible colour, whispered a white terrier who was close to him. This is a white world, no crimson allowed. Elfrida caught Edred's hand. Edward is quite as brave as me, she said. He'll go, won't you? Of course I will, said Edward impatiently. Then ascend the steps of the throne, said the Moldiest Walk, very kindly now, and sit here by my side. Edward obeyed, and the Moldiest Walk leaned towards him and spoke in his ear, so that neither Elfrida nor any of the great company in the White Hall could hear a word, only Edward alone. If you go to rescue Richard Arden, the Moldiest Walk said, you make the greatest sacrifice of your life, for he who was called Richard Harding is Richard Arden, and it is he who is Lord Arden, and not you or your father. And if you go to his rescue, you will be taking from your father the title and the castle, and you will be giving up your place as heir of Arden to your cousin Richard, who is the rightful heir. But how is he the rightful heir? Edward asked, bewildered. Three generations ago, said the Moldiest Warp, a little baby was stolen from Arden, Death came among the Ardens, and that child became the heir to the name and the lands of Arden. The man who stole the child took it to a woman in Deptford, and gave it in charge to her to nurse. She knew nothing but that the child's clothes were marked Arden, and that it had tied to its waist a coal and bells engraved with a coat of arms. The man who had stolen the child said he would return in a month. He never returned fought in a duel and was killed but the night before the duel he wrote a letter saying what he had done and put it in a secret cupboard behind a picture of a lady who was born an arden at talbot court and there that letter is to this day i hope i shan't forget it all said edred none ever forgets what i tell them said the moldiest warp finding that the man did not return the deptford woman brought up the child as her own he grew up was taught a trade and married a working girl. The name of Arden changed itself, as names do, to Harding. Their child was the father of Richard, whom you know, and he is Lord Arden. Yes, said Edward submissively. You will never tell your father this, the low, beautiful voice went on. You must not even tell your sister till you have rescued Dickie and made the sacrifice. This is the one supreme chance of your life. Every soul has one such chance, a chance to be perfectly unselfish, absolutely noble and true. You can take this chance, but you must take it alone. No one can help you, no one can advise you, and you must keep the nobler thought in your own heart till it is noble deed. 
then humbly and thankfully, in that you have been permitted to do so, fine and brave a thing, to draw near to the immortals of all ages who have such deeds to do and have done them. You may tell the truth to the one who loves you best, your sister Elfrida. But isn't Elfrida to have a chance to be noble too? Edward asked. She will have a thousand chances to be good and noble, and she will take them all. She will never know that she has done it, said the Mouldiestwalk gravely. Now, are you ready to do what is to be done? It seems very unkind to Daddy, said Edward, stopping his being Lord Arden and everything. To do right often seems unkind to one or another, said the Mouldiestwarp. But think, how long would your father wish to keep his house and his castle if he knew that they belonged to someone else? I see, said Edward, still doubtfully. No, of course he wouldn't. Well, what am I to do? When Dickie's father died, a Deptford woman related to Dickie's mother kept the child. She was not kind to him, and he left her. Later she met a man who had been a burglar. He had entered Talbot Court, opened a panel, and found that old letter that told of Dickie's birth. He and she had kidnapped Dickie, hoping to get him to sign a paper promising to pay them money for giving him the letter which tells how he is the heir to Arden. But already they have found out that a letter signed by a child is useless and unlawful, and they dare not let Richard go for fear of punishment. So if you choose to do nothing, your father is safe, and you will inherit Arden. What am I to do? Edward asked again. To get Dickie back, I mean. You must go alone, and at night to Bill's cottage. Open the door, and you will find Richard's dog asleep before the fire. You must unchain the dog and take him to the milestone by the crossroads. Then go where the dog goes. You will need a knife to cut cords with, and you will need all your courage. Edward looked into the eyes of the mouldiest warp and saw that they were no longer a mole's eyes, but were like the eyes of all the dear people he had ever known. And through them, the soul of all the brave people he had ever read about looked out at him and said, Courage, Edward, be one of us. Edward looked, and behold, they were no longer strangers. He knew them all, Joan of Arc and Peter and the Hermit, Hereward and Drake, Elsa whose brothers were swans, St. George who killed the dragon, Blondel who sang to his king in prison, Lady Nisdale who brought her husband safe out of the cruel tower. There were captains who went down with their ships, generals who died fighting for forlorn hopes, patriots, kings, nuns, monks, men, women and children all with that light in their eyes which brightens with splendour the dreams of men. And as he came down off the throne, the great ones crowded round, clasping his hand and saying, Be one of us, Edward, be one of us. Then an intense white light shone so that the children could see nothing else, and then suddenly there they were again within the narrow walls of Edward's bedroom. Well, said Elfrida in tones of brisk commonplace, what did it say to you? I say, you do look funny. Don't, said Edward crossly. He began to tear off the armour. Here, help me to get these things off. But what did it say? Elfrida asked helpfully. I can't tell you. I'm not going to tell anyone till it's over. Oh, just as you like, said Elfrida. Keep your old secrets and left him. That was hard, wasn't it? I can't help it, I tell you, oh, Elfrida, if you're going to bother, it's just a little bit too much, that's all. 
You really mustn't tell me? I've told you so fifty times, he said, which was untrue. You know he had only really told her twice. Very well, then, she said heroically. I won't ask you a single thing, but you'll tell me the minute you can, won't you? And you'll let me help? Nobody can help. No one can advise me, Edward said. I've got to do it off my own bat if I do it at all. Now just shut up. I want to think. This unusual desire quite awed Elfrida, but it irritated her too. Perhaps you'd like me to go away, she said ironically. And Edward's wholly unexpected reply was, Yes, please. So she went. When she was gone, Edward sat down on the box at the foot of his bed and tried to think. But it was not easy. I ought to go, he told himself. But think of your father, said something else, which was himself too. He thought so hard that his thoughts got quite confused. His head grew very hot, and his hands and feet very cold. Mrs. Honeyset came in, exclaimed at his white face, felt his hands, said he was in a high fever, and put him to bed with wet rags on his forehead and hot water bottles to his feet. Perhaps he was feverish. At any rate, he could never be sure afterwards whether there really had been a very polite and plausible black mole sitting on his pillow most of the day, saying all those things which the part of himself that he liked least agreed with, such things as, Think of your father. No one will ever know. Dickie will be all right somehow. Perhaps you only dreamed that about Dickie being shut up somewhere, and it's not true. Anyway, it's not your business, is it? And so on. You know the sort of thing. Elfrida was not allowed to come into the room for fear Edward could be ill with something catching. So he lay, tossing all day, hearing the black mole or something else say all these things and himself saying, I must go. Oh, poor Dickie, I promise to go. Yes, I will go. And late that night, when Lord Arden had come home and had gone to bed, tired out by a long day's vain search for the lost Dickie, and when everybody was asleep, Edward got up and dressed. He put his bedroom candle and matches in his pocket, crept downstairs and out of the house and up to Bill's. It was a slow and nervous business. More than once on the staircase he thought he heard a stair creak behind him, and again, and again, as he went along the road, he fancied he heard a soft footstep pad padding behind him. But of course, when he looked round, he could see no one was there. So, presently, he decided that it was cowardly to keep looking round, and besides, it only made him more frightened. So he kept steadily on, and took no notice at all of a black patch by the sweetbriar bush by Bill's cottage door, just exactly as if someone was crouching in the shadow. He pressed his thumb on the latch, and opened the door very softly. Something moved inside, and a chain rattled. Edward's heart gave a soft, uncomfortable jump, but it was only true, standing up to receive company. He saw the whiteness of the dog and made for it, felt for the chain, unhooked it from the staple in the wall and went out again, closing the door after him and followed very willingly by True. Again he looked suspiciously at the shadow of the great sweetbriar, but the dog showed no uneasiness, so Edward knew that there was nothing to be afraid of. True, in fact, was the greatest comfort to him. He told Elfrida afterwards that it was all True's doing. He could never, he was sure, have gone on without that good companion. True followed at the slack chain's end, 
till they got to the milestone, and then, suddenly, he darted ahead and took the lead. The chain stretched taut, and the boy had all his work cut out to keep up with the dog. Up the hill they went, on to the downs, and in and out among the firs bushes. The night was no longer dark to Edred. His eyes had got used to the gentle starlight, and he followed the dog among the gorse and brambles without stumbling, and without hurting himself against the million sharp spears and thorns. Suddenly True paused sniffed sneezed blew through his nose and began to dig come on come on good dog said edward come on true for his fancy pictured dicky a prisoner in some lonely cottage and he longed to get it and set him free and get safe back home with him so he pulled at the chain but true only shook himself and went on digging the spot he had chosen was under a clump of firs bigger than any they had passed a sharp firs spikes pricked his nose and paws, but True was not the dog to be stopped by little things like that. He only stopped every now and then to sneeze and blow, then went on digging. Edward remembered the knife he had brought. It was the big pruning knife, out of the drawer in the hall. He pulled it out. He would cut away some of the furze bushes. Perhaps Dicky was lying bound, hidden in the middle of the furze bush. Dicky, he said softly. Dicky? But no one answered. Only True sneezed and snuffed and blew and went on digging. So then Edward took hold of a branch of firs to cut it. It was loose, came away in his hand without any cutting. He tried another. That too was loose. He took off his jacket and threw it over his hands to protect them, and seizing an armful of firs, pulled and fell back, a great bundle of the prickly stuff on top of him. True was pulling like mad at the chain. Edward scrambled up. The firs he had pulled away disclosed a hole and true was disappearing down it edward saw as the dog dragged him close to the hole that it was a large one though only part of it had been uncovered he stooped to peer in his foot slipped on the edge and he fell right into it the dog dragging all the time stop true lie down sir he said and the dog paused though the chain was still strained tight then edward was glad of his bedroom candle he pulled it out and lighted it and blinked, perceiving almost at once that he was in the beginning of an underground passage. He looked up. He could see above him the stars playing through a net of furze bushes. He stood up and True went on. Next moment he knew that he was in the old smuggler's cave that he and Elfrida had so often tried to find. The dog and the boy went on, along a passage, down steps in the rock, through a rough, heavy door and so into the smuggler's cave itself, an enormous cavern as big as a church. Out of an opening, at the upper end, a stream of water fell, and ran along the cave clear between shores of smooth sand, and lying in the sand near the stream was something dark. True gave a bound that jerked the chain out of Edward's hand, and leaped upon the dark thing, licking it, whining, and uttering little dog moans of pure love and joy, for the dark thing was Dicky fast asleep. He was bound with cords, his poor lame foot tied tight to the other one. His arms were bound too, and now he was awake. Down, True, he said. Hush, shh. Where are they? The man and woman, Edward whispered. Oh, Edward, you, you perfect brick, Dickie whispered back. They're in the further cave. I heard them snoring before I went to sleep. Lie still, said Edward. I've got a knife. I'll cut the cords. He cut them, and Dicky tried to stand up, but his limbs were too stiff. 
Edward rubbed his legs, while Dickie stretched his fingers to get the pins and needles out of his arms. Edward had stuck the candle in the sand. It made a ring of light round them. That was why they did not see a dark figure that came quietly creeping across the sand towards them. It was quite close to them before Edward looked up. Oh, he gasped, and Dickie, looking up, whispered, It's all up. Run. Never mind me. I shall get away all right. No, said Edward, and then with a joyous leap of the heart, perceived that the dark figure was Elfrida in her father's ulster. I hadn't time to put on my stockings, she explained later. You'd have known me a mile off by my white legs if I hadn't covered them up with this. Elfrida, said both boys at once. Well, you didn't think I was going to be out of it, she said. I've been behind you all the way, Edward. Don't tell me anything. I won't ask any questions. Only come on out of it. Lean on me. They got him to the passage, one on each side. By that time, Dickie could use his legs and his crutch. They got home and roused Lord Arden, and told him Dickie was found and all about it. And he roused the house, and he and Bill, and half a dozen men from the village, went up to the cave and found that wicked man and woman in a stupid sleep, and tied their hands and marched them to the town, to the police station. When the man was searched, the letter was found on him, which the man, it was that red-headed man you have heard of, had taken from Talbot Court. I wish you joy of your good fortune, my boy, said Lord Arden, when he had read the letter. Of course, we must look into things, but I feel no doubt at all that you are Lord Arden. I don't want to be, said Dicky, and that was true. Yet at the same time, he did want to be. The thought of being Richard, Lord Arden, he who had been just little lame Dicky of Deptford, of owning this glorious castle, of being the master of an old name, and an old place. This thought sang in his heart a very beautiful tune, yet what he said was true. There is so often room in our hearts for two tunes at a time. I don't want to be. You ought to be, sir. You've been so kind to me, he said. My dear boy, said the father of Edward and Elfrida, I did very well without the title and the castle, and if they're yours, I shall do very well without them again. You shall have your rights, my dear boy, and I shan't be hurt by it. Don't you think that? Dickie thought several things and shook the other's hand very hard. The tale of Dickie's rescue from the cave was the talk of the countryside. True was praised much, but Edward more. Why had no one else thought of putting the dog on the scent? Edward said that it was mostly True's doing, and the people praised his modesty, and nobody except perhaps Elfrida ever understood what it had cost Edward to go that night through the dark and rescue his cousin. Edward's father and Mrs. Honeyset agreed that Edward had done it in a delirium of a fever, brought on by his anxiety about his friend and playmate. People do, you know, do odd things in fevers that they would never do at other times. The red-headed man and the woman were tried at the assizes and punished. If you ask me how they knew about the caves, which none of the country people seemed to know of, I can only answer that I don't know. Only I know that everyone you know knows lots of things that you don't know they know. When they all went a week later to explore the caves, they found a curious arrangement of brickwork and cement and clay, shutting up a hole through which the stream had evidently once flowed out into the open air. It now flowed away into darkness. Lord Arden pointed out how its course had been diverted and made to run down underground to the sea. We might let it come back to the moat, said Edward. It used to run that way. 
It says so in the history of Arden. We must decide that later, said his father, who had a long blue lawyer's letter in his pocket. End of chapter 10 The Noble Deed Recording by Chris Clark, Sittingbourne, Kent, United Kingdom